welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Tom Brownlee from Bookie Bashing. Tom, thank you very much for coming on. The Business of Betting podcast is proudly brought to you by the Betfair Hub from Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you want expert articles from pro punters, from building automated models to betting psychology, check out the Betfair Hub. Betfair.com.au slash hub. Gamble responsibly. Today I'm joined by Tom Brownlee from Bookie Bashing. Tom, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me on, Jake, and thanks for the opportunity as well to talk to another adult human being, because I'll tell you <laughs> this, there's a special corner in hell where they have closed the primary schools of the children of the damned through lockdown, and those poor souls are forced into a winter of teaching phonics and fractions, so it is great to be on. <laughs> well, sadly we're not in person, but at least it's some interaction, and first thing I want to ask, bookie bashing, that's not a very nice name, is it? No, it's not. It's it's extremely informal as well, because <laughs> um, I think we've got quite a quite a sort of technical product. But um, the, the, after a while, it sticks. I'll tell you. Fair enough. I like it. I like it. So tell me about yourself. What's your what's your background? Okay. Yes, yeah, so I have an uh, I have an academic background. Um, a long time ago, back in the sort of early two thousands, I did a six year postgraduate research project on. Um, mainly on the statistics of prediction and decision-making. So I was lucky enough to travel around to a few international conferences and learn from some people that were a lot more clever uh, than I was. And um, I taught that to undergraduates at university between about sort of 1999 to 2005. Um, And because I was a research uh, person at university I was making next to no money at the time so I funded that by playing poker um I thought at the time at the beginning I was doing quite well because I was applying my sort of knowledge of statistics and prediction and decision making to poker but after a while it wasn't that um poker in the early 2000s was quite straightforward for anybody to make some money as long as you were playing ABD uh, and maybe sitting down at the correct tables. And when Americans could play poker, that meant that if you sat down early on a Sunday morning in the UK, you'd generally be playing the Americans that were up at two, three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, in the morning in America. And uh, it doesn't take a genius to see that that's an easy way of sort of playing straightforward poker and making some money. So um, that was my career until the late 2000s when I became a consultant to the government. We would look at um, uh, investment strategies uh, down in London. So um, uh, we would predict how sort of major infra- infrastructure would um, uh, uh, need maintenance and behave and perform over time and then sort of determine the optimal strategy for investing in those infrastructure projects. Um, and at the same time, I was still playing a bit of poker, but I was getting a little bit more into sports betting. And uh, at the time in every professional gamblers life arrives where you're making significantly more from sports betting or gambling than you are from your career and the question has to be asked do I want to hold on to the career Uh, is the career holding me back from the gambling or is the gambling holding me back from the career Uh, and 
everyone has the same question. I'm making money today. We can see this. But will I be making money in two years' time, five years' time? I can't guarantee what's going to be around the corner. And if I'm still going to be um, having the same success, edges and angles that I do today. So it took a while to make that leap. But um, I did make it in the early 2010s. And um, my progression really started in a in a team and a syndicate of people that were making money on football coupons from uh, betting shops. We would um, get together, we would pool our money into a central pool. Uh, we would all go out on, and bet on very similar, but not exactly the same football coupons. Uh, I don't know. Do you have football coupons in Australia, uh, Jake? No, just describe what coupon means. I think most okay, people yeah. understand, but just for everyone else. Yeah, no worries. So uh, in the UK, we have um, five big branded high street betting shops, Betfred, William Hill, Ladbrokes, Coral and Paddy Power, plus a few independents spread around as well. And each of them, um, since the dawn of time, um, prints weekly coupons where they list all of the UK and European soccer matches, um, one after the other. And you, uh, there's a grid of home drawn away and you can bet on the home team, the draw or the away. And you can put these into singles, doubles, trebles, quadruples, lucky 15s, lucky 31s, Yankees, whatever you want to do. Um, and they're extremely popular with the shops because uh, when the shop takes a single negative equity bet and puts that into a double, the edge that the shop has uh, increases exponentially. So they want people to be placing doubles, trebles, quadruples, the higher the better. So their technique for doing this was to publish football coupons on everything, on uh, the Premiership, on La Liga, on Bundesliga, on match odds, on over 2.5 goals, on all kinds of different markets. So uh, there are various techniques and um possibilities to get an edge and an angle on these and um, once you've got an edge and an angle it's just a case of um, spreading the risk and spreading the variance so we would get together in a team we would pool our funds as I say we would maybe pick 10 teams and we would put a few in this coupon and a few others in this coupon there'd be a lot of overlapping and you kind of hope that they will all win and we did very well um, coupon betting in the early 2000s um, it was it was a it was a reasonable way to make some money. The only difficulty with it is the the logistics of getting around shops. If you live in London, you don't have a problem, but if you're out in the countryside in Worcestershire or the north of Scotland, then your, your options are slight, slightly more limited in terms of the number of betting shops that are available to you. So that was uh, everything I was doing up until the start of bookie bashing in about 2015, um, when you know we we decided that. Um, most syndicates and most um, uh, people involved in teams and betting understand that pooling information together is the best way of getting an edge. Um, no single person can be exposed to enough information themselves. Um, and there is real benefit uh, in having a team of like-minded people working together. So we made a lot of the tools uh, that we used for the coupons and for some golf and some other betting available and um, opened up Bookie Bashing in about 2015. So take me back to your academic days for a moment. What were the things yeah. from your prediction and decision-making work that A, you thought would be most useful transitioning over to doing it in the real world, and then B, 
what turned out to be most useful? Is there an idea? Is there a couple yeah, of yeah. areas that, that stand out to you? Yeah, so you, you often get the um, uh, the gamekeeper turned poacher uh, analogy, and I'm I, I'm the opposite of that, or the, I'm a poacher turned more poacher. I don't come from a background of compiling odds, um, and that that whole sort of um, branch of mathematics with respect to probability and uh, distributions and Poisson and all of that that goes into odds compiling. Um, that was uh, not a part of mathematics that I specialized in. I specialized in a branch called uh, multi-attribute decision-making. Um, now, this is a branch of mathematics where you have an incomplete picture and you want to apply optimal or near-optimal uh, mathematical decision making to this picture which is initially why i thought it was perfect for poker because in poker you're playing hands of poker you have incomplete information but you can make near optimal solutions even with that incomplete information so multi-attribute decision making i can i can do an example for you that sort of uh, cleanly pictures what it is imagine you're going out and you want to buy a car Jake, right, okay? And uh, you write down all the things you find desirable in a car. You want it to be uh, maybe red or orange, but you don't like green. Uh, you want it to go 200 miles an hour. You don't want it to be slow. But you don't have that much money, so you want it to be cheap. You don't want it to be expensive. Well, what you have here is you have conflicting objectives. If you're not going to spend more money, you'll get a faster car, but you want to do something where you get a faster car and you're spending less money. And that's where the mathematics come into it. You identify the attributes that are important to your investment decisions and you assign um, uh, indices to them. And the same sort of thing happens in sports betting. Um, whether either you are trying to estimate probability of events by yourself, or even you're trying to figure out more, uh, sometimes more importantly, where it is that you're going to invest your money. Because if you've got 10 grand, you might think, okay, I've got 10 grand, I've got an edge on golf, I've got an edge on football, I've got an edge on rugby league. How much am I going to put into each and it's a really tricky thing a lot of people may put three thousand three hundred thirty three pounds and 33 pence in each and then you see that the rugby league angle performed really well and you turn around and go did i put enough money into that pot so math um, multi-attribute decision making um uh, really helps with you know what you're going to do and where you're going to put your money um and there's always a finite number of options of how to invest money, although that number can be extremely large, um, especially in exponential problems, a lot of which you come across in football as well. Uh, this is where the more uh, information or the more data you add into the problem, it becomes exponentially larger in terms of solution space. And what you're trying to do there is find a near optimal solution for investing your money instead of, uh, you know, throwing a dart, as a lot of people do. So that's the first part of it was the actual mathematics. And the second part of the academic career was the concept of peer reviewing ideas, because especially in betting, betting works best when you've got an idea and you share it with some people and they can critically analyze and discuss it and feed back to you what they think is great and what they think doesn't work. And having other people look at what you're doing 
is so important. And so you've got an idea. Uh, they've got ideas of themselves. You critically analyze them. And the trick there is surround yourself with like-minded people, the right people. Don't surround yourself with people that don't like critical review, that don't share edges and ideas. Surround yourself with like-minded people, uh, just like they do in the academic community. And together, you can all become stronger. Interesting. I haven't heard it put in that way necessarily when it comes to the peer review aspect of academia and having that as a, as a tool um, to enhance what you're doing. I, when it comes to those syndicates and teams, did you find that there was balance in terms of what people were bringing to the table or was that always a challenge to try and, you know, if is, is it always 50-50, I guess is my question, or if you bring a little bit more, is it 60-40 or mm-hmm. if someone's good at getting out and going to the shops and being nice to the the people behind the desk there so you can keep getting your bets on, they might be a little less valuable or a little more valuable depending on what you need. How did the uh, the team aspect of the syndicate aspect come together for you? Yeah, so that, that's a very interesting question, especially the, I can answer definitively the question, is it ever 50-50? And the answer to that is no, never. Not once is it ever 50-50. And it, it even d- depends really on what it is that you're measuring. Are you talking about investment? Are you talking about effort? Are you, are you talking about time spent? Are you talking about hassle? Are you talking about risk? Are you talk- So there's a lot of different things that go into it. And, and actually, th- this sort of comes down to personal choice and, you know, your philosophy in life. But I've always been an advocate of um, as long as you surround, you trust the people around you. You split it equally. You split everything equally on on the knowledge that people know that some people are putting in more time. I mean, guys on the streets have to go and park their car and they have to sort of walk to the shops and it can take up their entire day. You have another guy who is um, doing some analytics on a spreadsheet, which they might take five minutes to do or it might take the entire day. Um, but as long as you all surround it, with uh, like-minded people who you trust and you know. And it, for me, it started off with people I knew in university. And then it moved on when I started um, posting sort of equity graphs on different forums, on online betting forums. Um, I got together um, with a syndicate and you sort of trust each other that, you know, and uh, together – I might be putting in two hours, you might be putting in five hours, but at the end of the day, look at the numbers that are coming through in the spreadsheet, and we couldn't do this without each other. I do know that there are other teams that haven't worked so gracefully because you get into arguments of we should split this 40-60, we should split this um, 70-30. But to me, that just means that you're not surrounding yourself with people that you trust enough. In fact, um, one one of the worst examples of a team that I heard is... um, they got together and they had this shared spreadsheet with um, shop prices on it. And uh, everybody in the team could log in and they could see the prices. And um, it took somebody a little bit of effort to maintain it. And he got a cut of some profits. But a couple of the guys, two members of the team, had made the decision that he was getting too much of the profits. And instead of bringing it up as a debate, what they would do is they would go onto the spreadsheet and they would just cut the price so it wasn't good anymore, even though it was still good anymore. And what that meant is that they could keep all of the money for themselves. They could go to the shops and no one else knew that this price was good. So it would last longer. And that's kind of an example of like, I'm so sorry that happened to that team, but you were not surrounded with the right people there. They were, they, they were people that needed to be weeded out very early on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm a, very much a proponent of you. You've 
surround yourself with the right people, split everything equally. And um, if you're in that kind of relationship, those kind of teams can go on for, for years or even decades. Most people I chat to focus online almost exclusively and almost everyone. However, mm. you know, it sounds like you've made a, a fair you know living when it comes to retail and in the shops. And I'm curious how retail and in the shops has been for you over the years. Is it as viable as online for you? Like, could you uh, have done what you are doing online only, for example? Or is it something that's 50-50 between online and retail? And is it becoming less viable these days compared to in the past? Tell me about how the, the shops have played a role in, in how you make an earn. Well, certain edges and angles are becoming less viable, but that will always be the case. You have the tragedy of the commons, right? So once you, an edge exists, the first person to find out about it will do very well out of that edge. Invariably, he will tell a couple of people they'll do well. They'll tell a couple of people they'll do less well. By the time everybody knows about it, the edge um, is worth pennies per person or just gets closed down completely. Um, so online versus shops. Uh, it's common knowledge that online it's just getting harder and harder and harder to stake at the required level to make a living um, or to stay unrestricted. Um, it becomes somewhat of a pain um, getting restricted by the soft bookmakers, which we pretty much only have access to in the UK. We don't have a pinnacle. We don't have bookmakers that welcome um, uh, winning Punters. We do have exchanges. Uh, they are fraught with their own difficulties in terms of liquidity in, in, uh, in a lot of markets. So um, it, it's always been a little bit easier to get stakes down uh, that are larger and to stay under the radar using shops uh, because you can go from shop to shop to shop to sort of place higher or you can have a guy in Newcastle and a guy in Exeter which are other sides of the country and they can both be getting on at the same time so you're getting more down but there's no way that the the shop can really tell that it's the same group that it is involved there and there's also the benefit that shops have um uh, self uh, betting terminals which uh, for a long time were just an easy way of sort of anonymously getting money down Recently, uh, it's been a lot harder. They seem to have the eye in the sky at uh, corporate HQ who look down in these betting terminals. Uh, they know who's using them and they can just switch them off um, from remotely uh, just to stop, any, you know, get, getting the bet down that you wanted to get. Um, but online, I have found that it's almost impossible for me to hold on to a betting account, even using various strategies, staying away from top prices, staying away from arbitrage bets and things like that. The bookmakers just seem to um, um, have lost sight of the ability to price up and give a bet to anybody that can show an inclination of making a profit. I mean, I'll try and show you an example. William Hill only seemed to want people that are placing negative equity accumulators fivefold, sixfold, sevenfolds, and something called your odds, which is where they take uh, combinations of events to happen in a game, goals, corners, cards, 
um and uh they put them into these your odds and you can say you know i want to bet on liverpool to have more than two corners in each half and the opposition to have a card in each half they're particularly bad at pricing up the your odds they don't know they're bad because if they did know that they're bad they would not price them up as badly as they are pricing them up so they think they're bad bets uh i've gone on to my account and i'm just placing these bad your odds and i'm placing really bad accumulators um just to stay under the radar and i won a bit of money which was the purpose of me you know having this william hill account and i withdrew a couple of grand and the next bet i tried to place was uh maximum liability 84p and it just goes to show that even if you're betting on things that they don't know are good once you reach a certain profit threshold, they're just going to shut you down anyway. And there's only a finite number of times you can open up new William Hill accounts. So um, it, it certainly is much easier to walk into shops or have a team go into shops to be able to sort of continue to to bet long term. So tell me about when you're trying to find an edge. Is it something that you're very reactive to? And what I mean by that is, are you looking down the board or looking down the sheets and assessing all the different prices and options and then going out and trying to find which ones are beatable? Or is it the other way around where you spend a fair bit of time looking into a sport like golf, for example, or or football or whatever it might be, and then you go and look at the prices? No, it's very much starting with what's available. Um, um, So there there are a couple of different angles at getting an edge in the shops. The first is... um, steamer chasing that's really easy that us ourselves we're not pricing anything up what we're doing is we are following very very closely what um the direction that smart money is going into um so once price movement um starts going through a few increments so a team was two to one let's say um uh barcelona uh, let's not use barcelona let's use a ajax or a a junior Dutch team are two to one and some expert in Dutch football has heard that the youth legend that is coming through the youth team is going to be starting. And that means that their price should be better because this guy's fantastic. He's scoring goals from all over the pitch. That knowledge that the youth player um, is starting is really useful for that one guy in that one market. He's going to get the best price on Ajax, probably on the exchanges, and everyone else is going to be playing catch-up, getting a slightly worse price as all the smart money comes in for Ajax, as that knowledge is known. Now, what we're doing is we're trying to monitor steams. So there, there is movement in the market that is just noise. But at some point, there's movement in the market which um, definitively suggests that this is coming down and it's going to keep on coming down. So we monitor all games simultaneously and we have a trigger threshold where we're saying, right, now is the time where we're pretty confident that this price is on the move downwards and we're going to go and we're going to bet on it. And so we'll go into the shop and we'll pick maybe seven, eight, nine of those teams that are all simultaneously moving down out of maybe 200 on the coupon. So it's like the biggest nine steamers on the coupon and throw them into a bunch of multiples and that strategy has served us very well um a sort of you know a, a one example being perfect example being the fa cup third round um in there wasn't one last year so it was the year before in 2019 
Um, in the third round of the FA Cup, they introduce the big teams. In the first round and the second round, you only have the non-league teams and Division One and Division Two teams. Um, this is because the FA Cup is such a big competition. It's kind of a waste of time for your Arsenals and your Manchester Uniteds to be playing such low-ranked uh, teams in the first and the second round. In the third round, uh, there are 128 games. And when you have team news, typically an hour before kickoff, you will find out that some teams are taking the FA Cup very, very seriously and are fielding their strongest team, and other teams are not taking the FA Cup seriously at all, especially in the third round. Uh, and they're fielding youth teams, weakened teams, B teams. And prices can start crashing all over the place. And sometimes you'll get a... Uh, non-league team playing a championship team and their price was 40 to 1 in the morning it's 30 to 1 by lunchtime when rumors are coming out and by team news it's 20 to 1 16 to 1 10 to 1 um and on the third round of the FA Cup uh, in 2019 we had quite a lot of these 20 to 1 teams 10 to 1 teams in the same coupon and we just put the treble after treble after treble on well the numbers start getting quite silly when you're putting trebles on with 10 to 1 10 to 1 and 20 to 1 because that's 100 times 20 that's 2000 to 1 on that single treble and on that day there were so many upsets at the same time uh and uh it was a day when I'd gone to watch the rugby down in Worcester and I stopped off at uh, Betfred in Worcester to place a few of these trebles. I went to watch the rugby. I was kind of half aware of what was going on when I was watching the rugby, but it's difficult on your phone to, or it was my watch that was going off with all of the goals. It's difficult to know exactly how well it was going. And when I came out of the rugby, I had £30,000 to go and pick up from um, the Betfred because all of these lower league teams had won at the same time. And they'd all produced these gigantic trebles that we had bet, uh, that we had bet on. So that's the first angle that we have, which is um, steam chasing. And the second one, you sort of said, do we price things up and then go and look for them? The opposite, in fact, um, we, what we'll do is we'll go into shops regularly and see what is it that they're offering. And they're, they're, offer, they're, all, they're always trying different things to bring money in. They'll say, come and bet at four to one on there being over 120 goals in um, Australia and England and New Zealand today. And uh, we'll think, OK, well, what do we think about that? Um, and we have developed a few tools to sort of quickly work out what the answer is to you know over 120 goals in certain leagues on a particular day and i would say 98 percent of the time they've got it right and they're offering a typically bad price with a margin added one percent of the time they've got it slightly wrong and one percent of the time compared to the numbers that we're coming out with they've got it really wrong and it's those one percent that we then have to go and target and go around the country and get as much money on those as possible. I'm curious about your thoughts on intuition, and that's a it's a good example to use. In that situation where you go into the shop and you see 120 goals, if you and your syndicate members and teammates were all to sit there and say, is this a good bet or a bad bet, or is it over likely to be better or under likely to be better, how good can you get when it comes to intuition at some of these um, let's say proposition bets that are being offered. Is it something that develops and gets far better or is it always something that 
you just have to rely on the numbers and we're we're inherently biased when it comes to a lot of things related to gambling yeah i mean especially with some of these um uh, quite complex bets in- intuition is removed almost completely from it because um it- it's simply too difficult to work out it's too difficult to work out if if there should be over 33 corners 18 goals two red cards and um somebody's going to get sent off in seven consecutive games whilst you're stood in the shop because you kind of do need a combination of calculators probability distribution spreadsheets to be able to do it so in terms of the actual numbers i mean i've been doing this for a long time even if i, I go down and i do a lot of the analytics on the back end putting together the equations and the algorithms and even if i go down to the shop i'll stare at the screen and i'll just be thinking that it looks good, but I really don't know. And so the best way of doing it is sort of complete information capture. So it's a, it's a case of um, getting your phone out and sort of taking a snap of everything that's available in the shop and picking up every coupon and then going through. And it, it, this is the this is the boring part of the process. As I said, if it's 1% that we find that is good, we do have to go through that 99% that are bad and are not worth it, which is particularly time-consuming. You're sort of working things out uh, and you, you're pretty confident that they're not going to be good. So you're, you're overwhelmed with information that... Um, um, that you have to wade through. And you, there are three types of bias commonly in psychology. There's information bias, um, selection bias, and confounding bias. And the information bias, where you're seeking information that doesn't affect action, really applies when you're in shops. There's so much information that isn't important, but unfortunately, without going through it, you're not going to find the little gems that are hidden in the haystack. Yeah, interesting. So I'm... I'm interested in your thoughts on this question and I don't know the best way to ask it. Essentially, do you think you start out as an advantage player? Because you've talked about playing poker, you've talked about being in academia, you've talked about betting on sports and football and golf and these types of things. Do you think someone who's able to do this or let's say they're at the level where they can join your syndicate or be a part of your team, do they start at a, a very high level when it comes to AP or is it something that develops and there's a mindset shift, let's say, over weeks and months and years and it's something you have to continually work on because obviously a very small percentage of people will fit into that AP bracket um, and there'll be plenty of people that, that try it and, and don't make it to that level. So do you think it's something that you know you have a an advantage or a starting point far beyond everyone else that allows you to do it or is it something that, that takes a hell of a lot of work? It's not for everyone. I have good mates who... Um, who enjoy betting, you know, five pound uh, accumulators on the rugby every single weekend. And I've turned them and gone, you know, that Bet365 account that you're using, I can show you how to make a lot more money (laughs) from it than you currently are. In fact, I know you're losing money. You've told me you are. And and most people are actually turn around and go, I just do it for fun. I just do it so that I've got some interest on the rugby. Maybe I'll win a tenner. Maybe I'll lose a tenner. I know I'm sort of a few quid down, but it's under control and it gives me some enjoyment. And it's bizarre. There's the, a lot of people aren't actually interested in winning. And so definitely I would agree. I mean, I think an advantage player has to sort of have, a, I, I call it the CJB. You need to have confidence, judgment and balls, right? You need to have confidence in your ability to spot a positive equity situation yourself. Don't rely on other people. You can have other people in a group 
who tell you about positive equity situations, but if you completely rely on them and don't bring anything to the table, then you, you're going to sort of stop yourself from progressing in the field of advantage play over time. Then your judgment needs to separate out the problem. There's a lot of signal, but there's way more noise. And so you've got to get that signal out of the noise. And then you could have the, both of those things. And if you don't have the balls to go through with it and stake optimally, and um, whilst you're aware of the particular risks ahead of you, then um, um, you're not going to make it as an advantage player either. There was a very interesting thing that happened with the terminology advantage player in the last sort of five or ten years, perhaps just specifically in the UK, and it does bug me a lot. Um, advantage play is a term, as far as I understand, it was a term that spread through the the Mississippi River in the 1820s when poker players were playing on the boats and some were just better at cards than others and they started making a living out of uh, poker and they were known as advantage players. And then we moved through the 1900s, you have casino edge players, you know, roulette wheel bias card sharks, even winning horse players, they'd be defined as advantage players and latterly, you know, everyone's heard of the blackjack card counters in Las Vegas in the 80s and the 90s who were uh, be becoming very famous advantage players. And then something strange happened. Um, in the UK, arbitrage exploded in popularity uh, in the early 2010s, which in, in, uh, incidentally made it a lot harder for advantage players to get stakes down at the same time. Um, and somebody in the arbitrage community, which uh, probably outnumbers the advantage play community 100 to 1, I would imagine. Somebody um, said that advantage play was when you back a bet and you don't hedge the other side of it. I mean, that specific definition, you're not hedging your bet. Uh, and many saw this as a mythical unicorn way of making money. Um, and, uh, and many also said that you can't possibly make any money unless you were hedging your bet. And so the term advantage play became bastardized. And he's, oh, you're advantage playing. That means you're not hedging your bet. But mm, I, I got slightly wound up. So now I'm an advantage player. I mean, I've got, if I've got an edge in the casino, I'll, I'll use it. Um, if I've got an edge playing poker... Um, I'll use that. And all of this is just me playing and getting an advantage on it. So it, it really is time, I think, to to reclaim that phrase from the advantage players. Interesting. So I want to ask about the, the four dark arts, as you put them, of professional gambling. And certainly, you know, over the years, talking to many people uh, like yourself about the science of, of gambling and, and betting and what, what that you know requires when it comes to things like um, staking and, and other areas where mm -hmm. you can be far more specific, especially in sort of closed system games. Um, but I think yeah, more yeah. so the art of, of gambling is what people like talking about and, and hearing about the most. And I think it's most relevant because it's the most difficult and there's no clear, perfect answer. There's no algebraic you know, equation we can put together. It's, it's a bit of touch and feel involved. So tell me those four dark arts that, that you can sort of refer to and, and how they matter when it comes to professional gambling. Sure. So, right. You've got the science of gambling. You have the science of what's your equity? What's the mathematical edge? What's the probability? And all of that's very important. But it's not as important as the art of gambling, as far as I am. There are four different arts. There's the art of getting on. There's the art of identification. There is the art of staking optimally. And there is the art of psychology. So if I go through them 
one by one. The art of getting on is overlooked by a lot of people. And there's one particular person I think of who is the uh, Leonardo da Vinci of getting money on. So um, in the Cheltenham Festival a couple of years ago, um, uh, it was determined that William Hill were paying so many places in a race that you could go into the shop with a blindfold on, pick a horse at random, and it's very likely to be a positive equity bet. So if you're an advantage player, you might think, okay, I'll go in and pick the one that's, you know, maybe the favorite because mathematically he's the one that's going to return a little bit of money or maybe one that's closest to top price or closest to some benchmark. And, you know, if you're betting blindly, that's not necessarily going to be a bad decision. You've identified the edge, you're betting where you should. So it's all good. Maybe you might have two horses. Maybe you might have three horses. I know a chap who saw this edge and he put together a team of people that he knew, a team of friends, and he pulled together essentially a six-figure bankroll and he got 20 people simultaneously to to work nine to five in the morning, going into different shops, placing bets on horse one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And centrally, there was a documentation system that many large corporate HR um, teams would be proud of the complexity of this that would monitor which horses were being bet on, which horses, because um, of course the horses at the higher odds had to take less stakes than the horses at the lower odds, uh, and um, which horses needed topping up, um, and which horses were changing price. And over the day, he would place, well, get his team to place an enormous amount of bets all on different horses. So very difficult for the bookmaker to work out exactly what's going on when all these people are just placing two horses that are all different. Um, And at the end of it, the guy made tens of thousands of pounds per horse race because he'd absolutely mastered the art of getting on. And this is what I harp back to, is that you can understand the principles and the mathematics, but if you don't know how to get on, then none of that matters. It's sort of the same thing if you're complaining about being restricted online. It's your problem to solve to get money down with the bookmakers. No one said it was easy. In fact, the reason it's difficult is the reason that most people can't do it. So it's an art to be mastered. And the second one is the art of an identification of an edge. Um, And we discussed this a little bit with the coupons. Um, find what's out there and price things up yourself and follow smart money. So following smart money, realize that, you know, uh, what, um, there are other people out there who contain information uh, and sharpness that is way more than you possibly could hold yourself and use that, uh, whether that's exchanges, whether that's other bookmakers, use the information of smart money to make informed decisions yourself and um, identify those edges, price things up yourselves, break think, break problems down, use everything at your disposal. Um, often I'll see that the only price that is that high is the price 
that's staring me right in the face. And it's difficult to make an argument not to bet on it, but it's only because I've broken it down in as many different ways as I can. So the art of that identification of an edge, taking personal responsibility for determining the value is just as important. Don't rely on other people. Go and do it yourself. The art of staking optimally is difficult for many people. And it's something I have always questioned. Um, betting high enough is an art form in two components. First of all, you've got to understand the impact of your bankroll. Um, and not don't be too worried to bust a subsection of it. So let me explain that. Let's say your bankroll is $10,000. And you want to split this bankroll um, amongst golf and coupons and exchange betting. Well, you might assign $5,000 to it. The reason you might assign $5,000 to those three things is because if they all go wrong, you can reload. You've got another $5,000 to reload on top of it. The reason I choose that, so I've now got two grand on golf and two grand on coupons and one grand on exchange. The reason I do that is that I'm no longer scared to bust any one of those bankrolls. And with my two grand from golf, I'm going to be betting it quite hard. I'm going to be betting it quite aggressively. And that encourages me to try and push up my limits. The hardest thing for all professional gamblers is when you start making money, you really should be increasing your stakes, but it's a very difficult thing and a very uncomfortable thing to do. Um, uh, and so you have to work on it. You have to work on the art of um, staking optimally. And finally, and it's something that is discussed um, quite a lot by people, the art of the psychological management. I mean, everyone understands the concepts of variance and it's difficult. Um, you have to be able to lose in order to win. And if you're not betting odds on, you're going to be losing way more frequently than you're winning. Now, it's really easy to win. Anyone can do it. You can win. I can win. Joe Punter on the street to win. My mother can win. Anyone can place a bet and win and be very happy about it. The real art comes in and what separates long-term professional gambling winners from even you know, winners who can't do the game long-term is the ability to lose regularly and not have it have a negative impact on your judgment, on your mood, on your relationship with people away from gambling. It does require a certain disassociation with a single outcome. You can't be there sitting watching a football game begging for a single corner to complete a bet that you're on because that's doing it wrong. It's way too short-term thinking. And I myself am guilty of that. Uh, many people I know are, but you have to minimize um, that viewpoint. It's something very difficult to get to zero. There's also this very odd psychological difficulty with gambling and variance that is most pronounced in the area of betting forums. I really started in the mid-2000s posting um, equity graphs on betting forums. I would say, if we bet to this strategy, my projection is that we should be making money. What does people think of that? And I've been around betting uh, forums for a long time. And there's this fascinating psychological aspect of betting forums, uh, really through the tragedy of the commons, um, through variance and through the exclusion of face-to-face -face assembly, um, that they all descend into chaos and anarchy at some point. Um, imagine a graph. On one axis, you've got winners and losers. And on the other axis, you've got good and bad people. So we've got four quadrants of this graph. Well, if you're 
losing money and you're a bad person, you're going to be causing a lot of anarchy and chaos <laughs> and you're going to be disrupting and causing negativity and making it a bad place to be because it's really all the losing that's happening, it's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. Somebody else is to blame for all the bad runs that you've had and everything that's going on. Okay. Uh, and if you're a winning, uh, sorry, if you're a good person and you're losing, well, you still have to... Um, uh, Add a, you're still going to add a lot of noise into the argument. You're going to be sort of questioning things and um, um, wondering what's going on, maybe politely, but all of that noise is kind of masking that sports betting variant is an extremely hard. There are eye-blisteringly long losing runs that have to go into it, and um, often you're doing everything right, but the variant is just biting you on the ass. Even when we have people that are winning, the bad people that are winning, they could be spreading false information. They're going to be throwing around accusations of aftertiming and um, maybe attacking the site. They don't want other people knowing that they're on to a good thing, which whilst you have good people, they also don't want other people to know that they're on to a good thing because it can cost them in the long term for equity. And again, this tragedy of the commons wants everybody knows about the edge, the edge goes away. So there is a self-serving um, protection mechanism that needs to be in place to protect it. And all of this psychology comes really to the form uh, in betting forums. I've never really seen one succeed uh, for all of those reasons. Uh, and personally, the art of psychological management is to dissociate yourself from all of that and quite simply become a robot, a robot that iteratively just works through rows of Excel and has no positive or negative experience uh, against any of the winning or losing ones that it is faced with. Fascinating. Yeah, I think plenty of people listening have probably been on all sorts of different forums throughout the years and seen very, very uh, similar things or experienced similar things. And one final area I'd love to get your thoughts on is just the evolution and the change of of gambling and the the world we live in because i think you know even even thinking about it as you were describing some of those dark arts you know getting on um has evolved and changed and morphed over the years but at the same time it's very much a similar challenge um it might just be a little different you know the avenues or you know retail versus online exchanges um all the different things that come with getting on maybe still largely the same same thing with identification you know, there might be more props, there might be more sports, there might be more lower leagues and all these things. But at the same time, you still got to find and identify those edges. And, and even with something like, you know, bankroll management, you might be trying to transfer, you know, Bitcoin and dealing with the volatility of that, or it's not just domestic anymore, or it's not just cash, it's, it's uh, online and digital and things like that. So it's funny, a lot of this stuff changes and evolves. And, and some people say it, it is rapidly evolving. It's certainly very different if you took a moment in time in, in 2021, let's say, versus 1991. Um, but also, you know, those dark arts, I think, certainly stand the test of time. So I'd love to get your viewpoint on just how you see that change and evolution over the years and even looking forward. You know, do you think in, in 10, 15, 20 years time, you know, the dark arts will be the same and a lot of the challenges will be the same? There'll just be a few different dynamics at play? Well, you talk about Bitcoin there. I mean, I look forward to the day where they can um, bring in legally uh, legal Bitcoin sports books um, in Europe and around the world. Because one of the things that advantage players have got caught up in, unintentionally and to the benefit of bookmakers, 
is the changes in source of wealth requests um, and identification requests that have happened, especially it's sort of every year it gets twice as worse as the previous year. I know now in Ireland, if you win 2,000 euros in a shop, which isn't a massive bet. I mean, anyone can have 100 euros on a 20 to 1 shot on the Grand National. You need to produce a source of wealth. Where did your money come from? How much do you earn? Show me your bank statements. What's your property worth? What's your name? What's your dad's name? Show me your DNA sample. Um, it's extremely intrusive. The reason they're doing them are twofold. They're trying to combat fraud, and they should because we've all been victims of fraud and there are some shysters out there that need to be stamped down on. And very importantly, they're trying to protect people who have maybe gambling uh, disorders or problems from betting more than they should. Unfortunately, over time, what has happened with bookmakers is they have used the advantage that they have to peer into people's personal finances and to disrupt people and make life awkward for them to not just target problem gamblers and fraudsters, but more importantly from, for them, they're targeting the unprofitable customers. They're targeting the advantage players. And whilst the mathematical game remains the same, or go and find the edge first, hit it for as long as you can and believe that next year that edge is probably going to be gone. You're going to have to be looking at different edges. Um, the mathematical problem will always be the same. The fraud and source of wealth uh, issues um, are becoming harder and harder to the point that it really could be a game stopper if someone doesn't step in from perhaps a libertarian perspective and say, let's all just stop. There are people out there that are buying expensive cars, that are buying houses they can't afford. We allow them to do that. We understand that there are, you know, people with gambling problems that do need help, but we can't be restricting the vast majority um, uh, uh, to allow the, the bottom one or half a percent um, um, to stop betting because at the, the studies have shown that it doesn't really help those either. So what we need to do is we need to solve the source of wealth, the fraud problems. Perhaps we could have a Bitcoin sports book where we're all betting anonymously, uh, and that could be a benefit in the future. Um, in terms of real-life sports data, staying on your toes, um, were you to plot um, the last five years' worth of uh, goals, corners, and cards in European and British leagues on a graph, and monitored them, you would have seen that as soon as lockdown started, they all fell off a cliff. And anyone that was able to identify that happening right at the start would have cleaned up by betting unders. I was one of the unfortunate few that saw that it happened after, like six months after it had happened was when I started doing those analytics. And by then, the bookmakers had all adjusted their lines and now even betting unders they've got it about right and it, it is that component that i know i missed it but there'll be another one in the future at some point we're going to regress to the means in terms of goals corners cards so we need to be uh, right at the front of the queue when those um, statistics start coming back up and betting the overs prices whilst they are um, priced incorrectly. So um, as long as we are the people at the front of the queue, aware that trends are changing, then we'll be okay for the next five years, for the next 10 years, as long as we can keep on depositing more than 50 quid a month into an online account. And as long as the shops can stay open uh, and the staff can stay employed without everything coming through those self-service betting terminals.
So I have to mention bookie bashing, and I just want to ask, what type of gambler have you found finds the most value there? Because there's obviously some some great tools there, the bet calculators, all the different information, uh, the forum as well. Don't let Tom's description of some of those bad quadrants uh, <laughs> turn you away. Tell me about the, the type of person that might find value at bookie bashing. Yeah, so we're sort of more aiming um, uh, at the higher stakes better. I think anyone betting, you know, my mates included, £5, £10 a week, um, they're not going to win enough to sort of cover it. We're looking at people who are, are you hitting the shops? Um, are you um, uh, interested in sharing the intel from the shops into the wider community? And then um, we have on the site three components, education, trackers tools uh, education just like if you don't understand why we're hitting this particular edge and where the equity is coming from we can explain it there uh, the tools we have various calculators and um, 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 places where we're monitoring live expected goals live expected corners live expected shots and targets um, uh, uh, there and you can use the calculators to work it out even a little cool thing the game center which um Almost every secondary market in a football game can be derived from the correct score market. So if you want to look at win both halves, if you want to look at team to win and both teams to score, team to win and over 3.5 goals, there's dozens of these secondary markets. If you nail the correct score market, then you have all of the information in these secondary markets, which is a good tool to use if you want to go and attack the exchanges, which are... um, which don't have the restrictions that soft bookmakers have. So we have that. And then the third component is trackers. Uh, we have the golf tracker. Uh, we've been every PGA and European tour tournament for the last couple of years. We've been highlighting um, uh, positive EV golfers um, from two different places. We get value from the place. Some of these bookmakers are offering 11 places on golfers. You just got to work out which of those golfers are the best. And also home back to the coupons things that follow smart money so we've got the golf we've got the horse racing which you know placing lucky 15s on those horses people have been have been showing some really outrageous um lucky 15 wins a few thousand here um a couple guys with tens of thousands i was a nose short of ninety thousand last september but my time will come when i crack that six-figure threshold <laughs> um and um sorry that's my microphone did a bit of feedback sorry about that and coupons trackers and things like that and if anyone's interested in coming along and um sort of trying it out and um yeah www.bookiebashing.net is the website and uh you'd be uh yeah we'd love to have you Amazing. Tom, thank you very much for your time. I feel as though we only scratched the surface on some of these topics and I had plenty more for you. So maybe we'll have to do this again sometime and dig a little deeper. I know we didn't talk much golf, which I wanted to get to, but we'll save that for a, for another episode down the line. Jake, I just want to say that your podcast is one of the more informative that I have. I really enjoy and look forward to uh, every episode that comes out. I stick it on for my uh, for my hour-long run each morning. So Amazing. great work on the podcast. Very much appreciated. <laughs> Thanks for your time and coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake.